say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me and hope you are having a great autumn so far. My guest today is Monty Oreck. He is a longtime photojournalist, an avid fly fisherman, and an author, of course. His first book, Feeding the Beast, is a journalism text about how to tell memorable stories with words, sounds, and pictures. And his second book, uh, just out earlier this summer, is called The Crater Lake Murders, the story of the 1952 murders of two General Motors executives and the search for a killer hiding in plain sight. So great to have you on today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're welcome, Eric. Thank you. So your interest in this case goes back a number of years, right? Yes. It, it goes back, uh, well, from today, that probably goes back to 2010. So I'm just going to say 13 years. Uh, it's often in the other interviews I've done, they say 12 years, but that's because that was a year ago when, when they were right. reading the materials. But but yeah, it was. It's been thirteen years now. Really, when I first became aware of it, that's that was my first, the the first time that I became aware of the Crater Lake murders was spring break uh, of two thousand ten. How did you make the jump from simple interest in this case to a uh, book commitment? Well, I guess the short answer is it was so interesting to me that I could never let it go. I just found the whole story so interesting at first. And then, you know, when you study something for that many years, it takes on a lot of different colors and changes. It begins as interesting. Then it be becomes something that's kind of confusing. Then it can be something that's that can sort of be irritating and bothersome. Why haven't they solved this? Over the course of those years, it was a lot of different things. Initially, it was just intriguing, and then it just became something that was became a personal thing for me. 
where I just wanted to solve it and do the right thing by the all the all the different characters that are involved, but mostly the two men that died and the two men that that killed them or were present when they died. Ultimately, I just wanted to do the right thing by those people because I got to know them so well in the course of those 12 and a half years. And you yourself had had done a television segment about this as well. Uh, You were able to look at uh, FBI files and really examine this case from a fresh perspective. Yes. So the FBI file... When we first did the news story for at the ABC affiliate in Portland, where I worked at the time in 2013, it had been several years that I'd been researching the story before I brought it to producers where I worked at the ABC affiliate there and was able to talk them into, let's do a sweeps piece about this story. So it was, it was in the process of producing that sweeps piece that we sent out a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI requesting all their information and their file about the Crater Lake murders case. They were the lead organization, or I should say a law enforcement agency, because the murders had taken place inside of a national park, Crater Lake National Park. And the FBI had done the you know, nine-tenths of the investigating was done by the FBI. We requested their file in 2013, July, and then uh, we did our story. No, we did not receive the FBI file upon our initial request, but we did our story anyway with the information that we had at hand. And that that was all the information that I'd gathered at that point. And then the producer and reporter I was working with, Ian Parker, we wrote the story and I edited it and we, and it was a totally good story, which uh, generated a lot of hits on the internet and Facebook and people were very well satisfied with it at work. And we were too. And for really the near term, the next year or several years, it was the first thing that popped up on the internet when you looked up Crater Lake Murders, our story. And I felt pretty good about it, the information contained therein. And then two, almost three years later, the FBI file actually arrived at work. Uh, Ian's and my name on it. And uh, that's when everything changed, really, it was when the FBI file came. So I've been lucky to visit Crater Lake National Park a, a few times. Uh, just a beautiful place. Would you mind describing it for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to visit uh, the park, the lake, and why it's so special? Thank you, Eric. That That is such a good question. I All my interviews, you're the first person that's asked that. Well, it is very special to me personally. It's a big part of my life that I've lived, you know, these 60 years, and it's special in a lot of ways. I think if you read the book, you can see how it's special to me in that sense. It's special to me that something happened here, which has been a big part of my life. And I think if uh, people read the book, enjoy the book, I think they'll understand that. But just for our interview here, since you're asking, I, I might 
describe outside just my writing interest in the place. I lived there near there and uh, for 25 years and mostly I went there to fish and uh, camp and visit with my family. We went there quite a bit because it's such an incredibly beautiful place. You know, I've visited most of the great national parks in the United States, that is Yosemite, California, where I grew up. I visited Yosemite as many times as Crater Lake, really, in my life. And then Grand Canyon, Carlsbad Caverns, Yellowstone, other national parks like that. Uh, to me, Crater Lake is right up there with the others. Crater Lake's really my favorite of all those that I just named. And it's an awesome, inspiring, slightly fearful situation. And there's no other place I, I've ever been in my life. I'm fairly provincial, but of all the places I've visited, it's really the most among the most beautiful, maybe the most beautiful. I, I just love it there. And especially I love I love the fishing near near it because it just so happens that a lot of really nice fly fishing waters come off that mountain in Oregon, uh, which I enjoy and actually figure in the story that I wrote um, because that's where Albert Jones, that, that was what was the destination of the, the two victims the day they died. They were going to go fishing. Albert Jones is going to go fly fishing that day. Right, right. Uh, Crater Lake is, is the deepest lake in the United States and on the site of a volcano. That is correct. Mount Bazama exploded 7,700 years ago. The ashes from the explosion drifted all the way to Quebec, Canada, and it created a huge volcano that went over the last thousands of years was filled in with the beautiful clear blue waters and that's how crater lake was formed in an amazing geological volcanic event so let's go back to july of 1952 would you tell us about elbert jones and charles culhane their backgrounds the business they were in and what brought them together that summer they both worked for General Motors. Albert Jones was a uh, regional manager out of Berkeley, California. He sold General Motors parts uh, throughout a region, including Southern Oregon. He sold General Motors, not just parts, but like Delco batteries and Champion spark plugs and other General Motors products that when General Motors at the time was the largest car manufacturer in the world, and Albert Jones was in charge of selling car batteries and spark plugs and other integral parts for automobiles for Chevys. So he was a uh, very busy man. He was a very prosperous salesman. He lived in Concord, just outside Berkeley. I'm talking about Albert Marsden Jones. The day that Jones died. He was with Charles Colhane. Charles Colhane was actually Jones's boss who worked in Detroit. And Charles Colhane was even more important as a businessman, considerably more important actually, than Jones. Colhane was the 
general sales manager for United Motor Services, which was an adjunct of General Motors. And United Motor Services provided car batteries, spark plugs, and many different car parts to all Chevrolet distributors and and uh, anyone that sold General Motors products. <laughs> Charles Colhane was a general sales manager out of Detroit. He was the boss in Detroit. He'd been in the job for several years, well-liked by his employees, uh, had a family, and he decided in July 1952 that he wanted to come out and see what was happening on uh, with his uh, Western distributors and meet some of the big accounts, basically. So it was kind of a, what do you say, a business junket for Colhane to meet the big accounts and for everyone to get inspired about selling all these products that they were all making a lot of money with at the time. Uh, everybody was very successful and very happy, and it was a very almost ideal situation in that sense. But that's who that's who Colhane and Jones were. Their relationship, in other words, was uh, Colhane was the big boss, and Jones was the was his a West Coast distributor who had a lot of influence and and was also very successful. So they weren't really friends, uh, basically superior and subordinate. Right. They'd never met before. Charles Colhane came out from Detroit. He met a gentleman in Seattle where he flew in, and he went through the various Seattle distributors um, to meet them first the, at the beginning part of, of the trip, which was just a few days before he met Jones. Then basically Colhane was dropped off in Klamath Falls, where Jones picked him up. And Jones was to drive him and introduce him to the accounts in, in Klamath Falls, which was Frank Eberline, who ran uh, the parts distributorship in Klamath Falls. And then they were going to go to Medford. And from Medford, they were going to go south into Northern California and Eureka and and make another stop there, and then from Northern California, go on to San Francisco. So their being together, Jones and Colhane, was part, kind of the second part of this big business trip to meet the uh, main distributors in the region. And as far as their going into Crater Lake together, th that was just their weekend. That was not actually a big deal for either one of them. The big deal was their business. It just so happened that they were in Klamath Falls on Friday and they would go into Crater Lake on Saturday to just killing time before they met together on Monday to resume their business dealings in Medford. Jones was going to fish with uh, Frank Eberline and a friend of his, and Colhane was actually not going to fish with them. He was going to drive on to Medford and meet Albert Jones on Monday. Albert Jones is going to take a bus and meet him. So really the trip to Crater Lake was not that big of a deal outside of the fact that it was their Saturday, it was their day off, and Colhane had expressed to at least one person that he was looking forward to seeing Crater Lake. 
So that was part of their trip. Crater Lake was part of their, the expectation of what they would have done that day had they not both been murdered. Right, right. And this was out of the ordinary for Colhane uh, doing things outdoors. You write that his idea of a Sunday off was a trip to a museum, not puttering around a national park. Yeah, I, I think that's fair I, that Charles Colhane was a homebody. He was a family man. He was a, not a big outdoors person. Albert Jones was. Albert Jones was an was born in Canada, and he was an avid outdoorsman, and he was an avid fisherman, fly fisherman, and that's what he was expecting to do that day. That he was on the day he died, he was going to go fly fishing with his friend Frank Eberline up by Eberline's cabin in Prospect, Oregon. But that wasn't what Colhane was about. Colhane was a businessman, a family man. He was serious. He just wanted to go to Medford and relax. He wasn't interested in joining these guys for their fishing trip. It's often been said that, oh, they were going to go fishing together, but they were not. Colhane had no interest in that. In fact, he said, uh, he begged off. He even said, I'm not feeling very well at some point, which <laughs> no one knows whether that's true or not. But it also sounds like a guy that says, I- I'm really not interested in joining your uh, your fishing party. He just wanted to move on to Medford and have a day off and relax. He'd been on the road for a, year, for a week and a half. So so that's the difference between the, the two men in terms of the recreation that weekend, their expectations, and also that the Crater Lake trip was something that even though Colhane wanted to see Crater Lake, he knew about it. It's apparently he'd never visited Crater Lake before. Never did either. But the Crater Lake trip for both of them was kind of a something they were just going to do on the way to other things. Right. So the park is huge. Multiple entrances. They pull into the Klamath Falls entrance and uh, pay a dollar to enter. And then they take the road to Crater Lake, but they never get to the lake itself. Correct. They pull over at an overlook, uh, assumably to get a view. Yes. I'm I'm not, I I would say that you summed it up just about perfectly. That's where they stop. Any creek, any Creek Canyon overlook, there are several overlooks. It was, the, it was the first one once you get inside the park by the old entrance, what was called the Klamath Falls entrance uh, or the south entrance uh, in 1952. It's no longer there. Well, there's a little sign that indicates where you are entering the park. And if you go into uh, Crater Lake National Park via Highway 62, you come past the big logs that are suspending the sign that says, you are now entering Crater Lake National Park. And it's kind of beautiful. A lot of people pose for pictures by it. Well, that's where the entrance was original. Well, where the entrance was in 1952 and where where Jones's uh, Pontiac, when he drove in, he paid a buck. Uh, his car was registered with the time and license plate number. And so that's how we know all that information about him because he entered right there where the sign is now. Exactly. It's just there was a booth in the middle back in 1952. So 
they leave the entrance where they check in and where they're recorded. That is Jones and Colhane drive up the road about three minutes, three miles to this area of the where this overlook above Annie Creek Canyon, and they pulled over there to view the canyon. An hour later, Frank Eberline and his son Alan, and Frank Eberline's coworker uh, Jack Vaughn, they all knew Jones. Frank Eberline and and Jack drove in to that same overlook, and then that's where they found. Jones's Pontiac parked there, right, just right at the overlook, just like, uh, well, any other car would look. Even today, just parked there with uh, one door swung open, like someone had walked out and walked over to look down into this 300-foot, 100-yard canyon straight down, super steep, dangerous, really, when you get to the edge of it. It's a place where people with fear of heights, they get to the edge and they just back off immediately. Moms grab their kids. It's a crazy spot in a lot of ways. And that's where Jones and Colhane's car was found, above this very deep canyon, abandoned, well, seemingly abandoned, with the passenger side door swung open. The driver's side was shut. A brief pause, a word from our sponsors. We will be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we are back. So the door is open. The key is in the ignition. Their sports coats are neatly folded in the back. There's a camera sitting there. The luggage is there. 
nothing looks out of place in the car except that the door is open. But they do notice something odd about the tire tracks. There is a, a second set, right? That's right. Jack Vaughn and Frank Eber- Eberline both noticed when they first got to the car that there were tire tracks going across the front of the vehicle that were fairly deeper than the gravel around it that indicated someone had peeled out for uh, you know lack of a better term had peeled out right in front of that car and they noticed not only that but also they noticed that well one door was the passenger door was swung open the driver's side door was not just shut but it was slammed shut they had a hard time opening the door but at the that overlook the ground is level a door would not go in and slam shut from inertia you could only slam a door shut there if you literally physically slammed it to make the door stick in there right like that's more like old car doors modern car doors don't do this as much but old car doors as we know with the heavier metal Sometimes you slam it shut and you have to pull it out a little bit. And that was, a, you know, this is 1952, very heavy cars, steel made and so forth. So all that indicated, that is, the tire tracks in the slammed shut door indicated something had happened. And then you just have to, I, I don't know, you have to figure it in your mind I guess you can figure it in your mind, you know, only peeling out tires can cause indentations like that. And only physical force can cause a door to shut so hard you can't open it. So I guess then it's when you have to try to figure in your mind, well, what happened to cause those physical things to happen? Foul play was not the first thing they considered, right? Their first Thoughts were maybe they're lost, maybe they're hurt, but but not necessarily they, they've been kidnapped or killed. Initially, they they hoped they had only gotten lost in the woods adjacent to the canyon on the other side of the highway. They thought, oh, maybe they went out in the woods, went for a hike, and they're lost. That's what they hoped. Uh, that's what Eberline and Vaughn hoped was that oh they must have gone out in the woods and gotten lost which is unlikely because jones is now doorsman and he's also been in those woods before nearby that was were not unfamiliar to him but they were hoping oh he must have taken his boss out for a little hike out here in the last hour or so and they found something found a feature that they're enjoying or they stopped and had a cigarette or something like that and they'll be right back Nevertheless, after about 45 minutes, they sensed something was out of place. I think that's the important way to, to talk about it is about 45 minutes, according to Frank Eberline's son, Alan, they thought something was wrong and they went back to the Klamath Falls entrance to tell the ranger there and what started the whole process of the investigation. Right, right. Uh, The men leave Alan in the car by himself. And this definitely 
suggests that they're not worried about a murderer on the loose at this point. And Alan, sitting in the car, has an unsettling experience. That's right. Yeah, they, they weren't thinking anything particularly nefarious had happened at that point. So they go back down there just to talk to the ranger because they know something's wrong. So they're gone. Alan's in the car, the 1951 Pontiac of Jones's that he had driven that day. He's sitting in the front of the Pontiac. He pulled a field and stream out of the back seat. It was probably Jones's. He was sitting in the front of the car. This is, if you see what a 1951 Pontiac looks like, it's a boat. It's a huge car with a huge steering wheel. <laughs> and the just the whole front dash looks like something that should be on a tugboat. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very large car. And Alan was 13 years old. So he's in the car. He's perched in the front seat there with his head bent down. He's probably invisible, okay, virtually because of his stature and the size of the car. It's, it's, a, it's something that all these years later in 2023, it, you have to picture it in the context of the situation. Alan was just a normal-sized teenager in this huge car. He's looking down at this, head bent down behind this big steering wheel. And what happened next, that I think you're asking about, Eric, is that while everyone was gone, while the overlook was empty, and while he was sitting there in the car, another car pulled up directly next to him right next to him, not alongside even, but next to him. And whatever happened, when Alan looked up from the magazine he was looking at, the car had pulled out, peeled out. I think he, he has indicated that the car pulled in very fast, pulled out very fast. And he only had time to see the car as it was pulling away, and he didn't see it very well because it pulled behind the tree that was that was right next to him. So he really never saw the car that had come up next to him to check him out, apparently. This is another little side story that's about the Crater Lake murders that I think is very important. Alan's father, Frank, thought it was important too. He wrote about it in his paper that he wrote for law enforcement, uh, Frank believed his son's story entirely and wrote it entirely in his statement. And in, in that statement by his father, he describes what I just described. And what it sounds like is that the people that murdered Jones and Colhane, when they were done, they came back to the car to look and see if there was any more loot. And they came back, they checked it out, and they probably were very surprised to see someone in the front seat. I guess that's what I think happened. I believe Alan's story. I believe that Frank's uh, description of it, and Alan describes it too, just as well as his father does. I believe it. And there's no reason not to believe it. <laughs> These are two honest people who were only trying to help and give the most information they could. And what I think this story indicates is that the murderers came back to check out 
the Pontiac one more time after they'd committed the murders and realized that they had gotten away with it. No one would find out for some time. They thought, well, let's go back and check out the car. Okay. And they arrived there, and to their astonishment, there was actually a child in the front seat, and they peeled out and left in the direction of Klamath Falls in Chiloquin, which is actually where the murderers uh, resided at the time. So a search party is put together, organized. The Oregon State Police, the local sheriff's office, uh, park rangers are all involved in the initial investigation. How long does it take for the bodies of the men to be found, and who finds them? When Frank Eberline and Jack Vaughn went back down to the south entrance and said, our friends aren't here, their car's up there and abandoned, we think something's wrong. I'm paraphrasing what they said. You know, it was maybe 3.45 in the afternoon there on uh, July 19. So when they told the, the ranger on duty there, I want to say his name was Dick Marquis. And basically what happened at that point was that, well, they called, they called the chief ranger and things happened very quickly from there. So let me put it that way. They called the chief ranger and he called uh, the other people in his employ and in a very short time, there were a bunch of people gathered there at the Indian Creek Canyon Overlook. Um, the chief ranger's name was Lewis Halleck. He had been the chief ranger at Yosemite and Carlsbad Caverns previously to being the chief ranger at Crater Lake. He was very experienced. And he immediately put into action a plan to both searched the woods adjacent to the overlook, that is on the south side of the overlook, and also to explore the canyon bottom in case the men had fallen down and died or, or, or were, had fallen down and were clinging to a branch or something, right? All that's possible. No one knew where they were, and, and I guess everybody was optimistic that they were still alive. So... That day, July 19th, between 3.45, when Frank Eberline and Jack reported their friends missing, to the end of the day, and of course that's almost, a, you know, that's a very full summer day, so 9 o'clock or so. They explored the woods adjacent to the, to the overlook, and then two men went down into the canyon on, with ropes and uh, to explore the canyon bottom directly below the Andy Creek Canyon Overlook where the car was found. So that's what happened the first day, without result, I should say. Everybody came back to the search area by the highway, and no one had found anything. The two guys that went into the canyon bottom, a ranger named Packard and another man, his climbing companion, they spent the night in the bottom of the canyon that night. So two days later, now July 21st, they had continued searching the canyon. They had con continued searching the woods. July 21st was a Monday in the search party that was out in the woods. A guy that was basically from Missouri, 
but he worked at Crater Lake National Park. His name was Rex Ash. Rex Ash was the member of the search party that day who found the bodies under the split fur and then called everyone in. Obviously, the two bodies he found were Jones and Colhane. And yeah, uh, one member of that group, that first group that found the bodies, he had a camera and he took photographs with the intention of selling them to uh, one of these pulp detective magazines. Correct. I believe the people that day said that it was a gentleman named John Owings who's in a picture in the book. John Owings took photographs of the scene in its original state, but those were confiscated by the FBI that day. Um, So whatever pictures he took were never seen and destroyed. There's no indication that they survive all these years later. Um, But yeah, he did take pictures of the bodies in their original state, which is different from any of the crime scene photos that, uh, that were taken later. Right. And and that's important, right? Because the bodies were moved by investigators. Uh, Originally, Jones had been sitting up and and kind of slumped forward. But when the official crime scene photos are taken, his his body was stretched out. Correct. Why do you think his original uh, position had, had been changed? Well, I would say first to describe their original positions. And this based on, uh, Frank Eberlein's description in his report, he describes how the bodies looked originally because he went in there initially with Chief Ranger. And Frank Eberlein described his friend Jones as being slumped forward, uh, seated and slumped forward, kind of like a toddler in a way, is how I described it. And then Colhane was laying down but against a tree with his back basically uh, sideways on a tree. So he was not laying, he was not flat. His back or shoulders were against a tree. So he was uh, in a sideways position. I believe Frank Eberlein used the term sideways. So those are the original body positions. When the FBI got there, they moved the body slightly so that both men were in all photographs after that laying on their backs, basically. They were laying down. They were no longer in their original positions. So yeah, the body positions had changed, which changed the scene and also changed the whole way that you would regard the scene to understand what happened. It sort of tamped down the violence and suddenness of the situation and made it seem a lot more calm and uh, that these men hadn't died horribly. But with them both perched there, kind of one against a tree and the other one, you know, seated, slumped forward, that must have been, it just must have been horrible. I don't even like to think about it, honestly. It, it upsets me to even to think about it. And, but that's how you have to understand how they died and the suddenness of it, and also to understand the crime and what happened and how it happened. When you when you uh, when you read 
Frank Eberlein's account. You begin to understand what happened when these men died, but none of that is apparent in the official photographs or very much in the official reports from the FBI or Oregon State Police. They, they don't even mention the original body positions, either agency. So some interesting things about the crime scene. Some of their items were missing, including their watches. Charles Colhane's shoes were taken, a really nice pair of shoes, and, and cash, a bunch of cash was taken as well. Correct. Uh, they, they were gagged. Some dentures from one of the men had been removed from his mouth and placed in his front shirt pocket. And they had bruises around their groins. So what does this evidence mean? I mean, what, what did police believe happened? What, what do you believe happened? Well, to your first point regarding uh, the dentures, I'll just speak about the ones that I know about. Colhane's dentures were found in his front pocket. Dentures meaning like a partial. And for people old enough to have parents that had partials, that's usually just a little wire frame that holds a couple of fake teeth, right? And uh, that's something that was in Colhane's front pocket. And I guess that indicates to me that when they said pull that out, they did that because they didn't want him to choke on it and die when they gagged him. So for that, in that moment, where his, uh, per, uh, where where the the people that who eventually killed him, when they were saying we're going to just gag you, but pull this thing out, we don't want you to choke to death, he m probably was thinking I might survive this. You know, they might not kill me at this point. And so he pulled out his partial, put it in his front shirt pocket. And then his necktie was used to gag him so he couldn't scream or anything. Um, and that's what happened in that moment. And the fact that Jones's shoes were gone, you, you make the point that it was a, a really interesting thing to steal. A middle-aged man's shoes of, of a certain middle-aged style, it makes you think that it might have been a man of similar age who liked them and had taken them. Yeah, that's what I think. That who would steal a 50-year-old man's pair of brown wingtips? Who would find that kind of footwear suitable? I would say it's a it's another middle-aged man. <laughs> no young man is looking at at a pair of floorshine brown wingtips and saying, "Oh, that, I want to wear those." So I think that was another indication as to the age of their assailants, which actually fits into the age of the people who I believe and in my conclusions and my whole story is about that Kenneth Moore and, and John Cole were both middle-aged men. And so the, the brown wingtips taken from the scene is also consistent with that. So yeah, the brown wingtips I think are a important part of the the Kate, the missing brown wing tips, because uh, then as now, younger people don't wear brown wing tips. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're older, only older guys look at a pair of floor brown floor shine wing tips. They were 
you know, $100 shoes at the time, only an older guy is going to look at those shoes and go, you know, those are pretty nice shoes. <laughs> Not a <Yeah>. young guy. <laughs> right? But right, it, right? Things haven't changed in that, in that sense. <laughs> but I'm glad you brought up the shoes. I think, it's an, I think it's an important part of the case. And they were never found. Colhane's shoes were never found. Right. So, yeah, this is one of the strange aspects of this case, right? These, these kidnappers took the time to gag them, allowed one of them to remove his dentures. They sat down, uh, bruises to the groin. The bruising around the groin, what does that mean? The conjecture in the uh, FBI reports, in several reports, was that what happened was that the victims were basically beaten up. And also that Jones fought back. Jones, when whatever was happening, when the gags were being applied or whatever, he fought back. And that somebody had to knee him hard in the groin to subdue him. Also, to get him on the ground, which is where he was found. Not coincidentally, I don't think. So the bruising to the groin for both men was basically to subdue them and to get them to uh, just give up. But something else happened. They didn't just, if they had just given up and allowed themselves to be gagged, they might have been found eventually alive, maybe, you know. But something else happened in that process of them being kicked in the groin, being subdued, being made forced to give up something else happened and i would say i my, my in my in, in the book the, the evidence points to that jones fought back and that's why he had the skull fracture they got cracked in the head before he died before he was shot and killed he got smacked in the head and he had a skull fracture above his ear so he got kicked in the nads hard, fought back, or maybe the other way around. Maybe he fought back and then got kicked in the nads. Then he got smacked in the side of the head. Then he was found seated, sitting up, facing forward. So that's, that's how I have figured from the FBI information about what happened to Jones, not his autopsy, and also what other conjecture of, of agents at the time. That's a nice thing about the FBI file. There's a lot of information in there. There's other people talking about it, not just the medical examiner. And so a lot of my, a lot of my theories basically parallel what I've seen other agents saying back in the day, that Jones fought back and he got smacked in the head. They kicked him in the nuts. They smacked him in the head. He fell down and he wouldn't give up or it was just a bad situation. And boom, boom, they both got shot. And that's how it ended. So as an investigator, where do you start? This is a massive national park and a natural place to begin uh, is to try and figure out who came and went that day. How do they do that? So everyone that came into the park in 1952 had their, their license plate recorded in the time they entered the park, but there were exceptions. 
if you had a pass, park pass, if you lived in Klamath Falls or Medford and you didn't want to have to pay a dollar every time you went through, you bought a pass. If you were an employee of the park and had an employee's badge, I, you would not have to pay the entrance. Uh, neither would you have to pay if you could demonstrate that you were a member of the Klamath tribe. Uh, the reservation was just east of the national park, what was called Klamath Indian Reservation then. Now they're the Klamath tribes. You didn't have to have a, a pass if you were a tribal member either. Back again after these brief messages. And we are back. So, so that was quite a process, I assume, uh, for the FBI to track down cars based on license plates. FBI actually went back and looked at 466 license plates that had come in and out of the park that day from the various entrances. And they, that's how many registered owners that they talked to. But that was not all of the cars that came into the park that day because some people had passes already. Some um, were worked at the park. Some were tribal members. And, you know, it's also possible someone could come in and out of the park with a license plate that they stole. and put a, You put a different person's license plate on your car, it gets recorded. That's hard to trace back. And there were instances of that too. So it was not 100%. Right, yeah. So, so one of the suspects that immediately moves to the front of the line is a man named Jack Santo. Can you tell us why he looked so suspicious to investigators? So uh, Jack Santo uh, was born in Medford, Oregon. And Jack Santo was in his life. He was known to have been involved in the murder of uh, seven different people. Most people that knew him thought he was involved in many more murders than that. He was really a serial killer. And he was, in a lot of ways, the first real serial killer in the history of the state of California. Jack Santo was suspected of the Crater Lake murders because of a quadruple murder that he was involved with just a few months later in Chester, California. He and two other people were convicted of killing uh, a father and three children in September 1952. So he became very quickly the center of the investigation because several aspects of this, uh, the Jack Santo murder in Chester and the Crater Lake murders kind of seemed to line up. Uh, so he was maybe not their initial suspect, but they arrived at Jack Santo after a few, well, by in September, a few months, I should say. They thought Santo probably did the Crater Lake murders. And then he continued to be the FBI's best suspect, really for the rest of the investigation, until the very end of the investigation, when they finally arrived at the people the men that actually did it. So you've already mentioned your suspect, Kenneth Moore. How did you first hear his name? And what, what makes you think that he had something to do with it? Well, Kenneth Moore is someone who 
would be completely unknown to anyone, even familiar with the crime, even with people that write about it and consider themselves experts. Kenneth Moore is well outside the uh, conventional understanding of the case for people that pay attention to it. I guess the first place I found Kenneth Moore was in a thesis project by a lady named Cheryl Usi, who produced a thesis project at it was Southern Oregon State University, the year 2000, I think it was. And in her thesis project, she just had found some information that was contained in Oregon State police records about Kenneth Moore. And it was a couple of reports, including one that he had admitted to doing the crime. I guess that was the one that stood out to me then as now. and. I found that in actually when we were doing our TV story in 2013, I'd contacted Cheryl. She sent me her thesis. I read it. And that was the first place I saw Kenneth Moore's name. But I didn't see it again until uh, I came into possession of the FBI file in 2016. And then I actually saw Kenneth Moore's name at the back of the FBI file. Then in 2019, when I was doing more research and getting information now from Oregon State Police, I found information from Oregon State Police about Kenneth Moore and how they had investigated him also, along with the FBI. And then I, re then I reached out to other jurisdictions in Oregon, Klamath County and Marion County. And then both of them also, I got more information about Kenneth Moore. And then that's how it all sort of snowballed and added up to Kenneth Moore having had to have been the person that did the crime. But it was very slow going at first. And it's something that you you really can't find out just by reading about it. You just have to get the information from the law enforcement agencies. And that's how it added up. Now, I would never have known otherwise if I hadn't done all the research and spent all that time, but that's how I found out about Kenneth Moore. It was a real process, put it that way. Right, right. So would you tell us about Oscar Aral in this bombshell piece of information he, he shared with his wife just before his death? I think that's probably the thing that that links Kenneth Moore most closely to these murders and makes him the, some would say the best suspect. In my mind, he's the person that must have done it. There's no really nobody else that checks off every single box. But Moore admitted to Oscar Arell that he did the murders. It's not really known when he told Oscar Arell, but he told Oscar Arell that he did the Crater Lake murders. And he said he did it with John Wesley Cole, which also adds up. Oscar Arell really didn't tell anybody on his deathbed, December 9th, 1966, he kind of reminded his wife, Lucille, remember this thing that we had talked about when we'd been driving up and down past this scene? I may have mentioned it before. Well, I'm dying. And I want you to tell the authorities that Kenneth Moore did the Crater Lake murders because he told me he did. 
And so on his deathbed, the day he died, he made his wife go and tell the authorities. She went to the Marion County Sheriff, a guy named Thomas Batchelder, told him. Batchelder took her report, and he passed it on to Oregon State Police. Uh, Oregon State Police passed it on to the FBI. This is in, this is now, it's no longer 1966, it's 1967. The paperwork is getting passed along about Arell's, Lucille Arell's statement about her husband's final words regarding Kenneth Moore having admitted to killing Jones and Colhane. And then in August of 1967, the FBI and Oregon State Police, who had never worked together very well before that in the last 15 years since the murders, they hadn't been working too well together before, but now they're suddenly working together. And they went out to Chiloquin to interview, I think, seven or eight different people about Kenneth Moore and the person he said was with him the day he killed Jones and Colhane, a guy named John Wesley Cole. So why did Oscar Arell wait so long to say what he knew? It wasn't like he was confessing to the murders himself. You know, why wait? The reason why Oscar Arell didn't tell anyone until the day he died, and the reason why no one knew for 15 years after these murders is because this case was completely secret to everyone that knew about it because these were these the people that knew about it were either members of the tribe or else they were friends or or spouses of members of the tribe or they or they lived in Chiloquin nobody wanted to be the person to blow the whistle on this thing because of course it would have been a huge huge pain in the butt for everybody that lived there. So it was a very well-kept secret for that reason, because nobody wanted to be the person to divulge this truth, because it would have just opened an enormous can of worms. It would have been a huge pain in the ass for anyone that talked about it and would have probably changed their lives forever after for the worse. Who wants to be the person to inform on this story? Nobody does. And nobody did until Oscar Arell, the day he died. I mean, it fits in perfectly to why this was an unsolved crime, a perfect crime, an unsolved crime, because it was really the best kept secret in Oregon for all those years. And Oscar Arell kept it until the day he died. Uh, other people probably knew as well, and they just kept it. Because why do you want to bring the power of the FBI and the United States government down on you and everyone you know? Who would do that? So your question, I mean, is well put, and I appreciate your giving me a chance to explain what I think happened and why this was is an unsolved crime, because everybody kept a secret because, you know, of the location and the tribal affiliations of so many people that were, that were part of it. They just, 
you know, it, it, people kept a secret and they still do. And if you read the book and you read into sections two and three, you'll see that people are still keeping this secret. It's still potent. It's still uh, 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 something that, that people don't want to discuss on any level because it doesn't benefit anyone. So that's why Oscar Rell waited till the day he died. He was married to a tribal member. And he asked his wife, that was, you know, a dying pledge. He asked her to please tell someone now, 15 years after the crime, 14 and a half years, whatever. So that's the story of Oscar Arell and the secret and why it was so deeply held. And I'm sure the, the Klamath tribe was, was especially mistrustful of the American government at this moment in their history. There was a lot of tension going going on between this tribe and the government. And in the following year, the Klamath Termination Act would become law. And this act reduced the size of their reservation dramatically. So the government was in the process of taking their land. And any misstep might make the situation even worse. Which, which I guess would be motivation for keeping quiet, not to poke the bear. I think that the way you put it is exactly right. That in the context of the times, in the history of the tribe, and their dealings with the United States government during those years, that is 1952 onward, that, that nothing could have been worse for them. And really, more recently, the the tribes are very successful, and and you know they're they're doing you know it, it, things have changed. But in 1952, their relations with the government were at an all time low point, and and there was every reason to just keep this thing on the down low. And I think that's why that's why it's a perfect crime. That's why no one knows about it. Because the people that did know about it kept it on the down low because they had a lot of motivation. It wasn't your typical crime where someone finds out about it in a bar and says, hey, I heard this at the bar. Well, that didn't happen. People weren't talking about this in that way. It was a completely different situation, a completely different story. In a way, it's a completely unique story. I think it's, uh, I can't think of any other that quite compares to it. And I think, in a sort of unfortunate way. It's a uniquely um, Oregon story. It's something that could only have happened in Oregon. And it's an Oregon story that's important, but it's uh, not one that a lot of people want to go back and revisit for good reason. Do you think even without the confession, there's still enough to convict more? Moore is the kind of person that if you were looking at one of those shows on Netflix, you know, where they have the, like the closer or these, uh, true crime dramas on Netflix where they, the police are all in the investigation room. Right. And there's the big board up there with different suspects pictures. Moore would be the one with all the different pencil lines drawn directly to him, even without his confession. And Take the confession out of it and, and remove the whole Oscar Arell story from it. 
you know, it's a great story. It's compelling as heck. And, you know, really makes a story that I wrote. It's an important part of it, you know, but take, take Oscar Rell out of it more in the first place. He's the only suspect of the FBI's and they had more than a hundred suspects. He's the only suspect of the FBI's that had means, motive, and opportunity. All critical. You can't commit a murder unless you have unless you have means, motive, and opportunity. Moore and Cole were basically the only two suspects among the hundred suspects the FBI named, and a few that the Oregon State Police named too. But they were the only ones with means, motive, and opportunity. That's very, very important. Also, Moore had a criminal history. He wasn't like a guy that he wasn't like an accountant or uh, or a or a guy that was well liked in his community. He was he was he had a long criminal history, violent criminal history, which extended into his middle ages. Right? There's at least anecdotal proof in the newspapers that he was involved in around violent crimes even into his middle ages. Uh, his own personal criminal history, if you look at his you know, rap sheet, if you want to call it, uh, he was most active in his 20s and 30s. Numerous assaults. Uh, there, there was the threat of murder in one assault where he robbed, tied up, and threatened to kill two men, which was very like the Crater Lake murders. They were tied up to a bed, just as Jones and Gulhane were about to be tied to a couple of trees that they were next to. So, <laughs> Kenneth Moore, he fits the bill in so many ways that you just can't look away from him. And the reason why you can't look away from him is because he did it. And it's, I think it's just fair to say that Kenneth Moore did it. Why don't we just talk about this thing in those terms? Kenneth Moore did this crime who was he? Why did he do it? What kind of person was he? And that's what I try to answer in the book. I, I want to understand Kenneth Moore. He's not just a violent, malevolent person. He was a human being. He had motivations. He came from a background where he was, uh, he had a lot of things happening to him at a very early age and within his family that played into what happened at Crater Lake with Jones and Colhane. I think it's fair to talk about those things too. That is Kenneth Moore's history. And that's what I do in the book. And that's what I'm trying to do. I, I want to understand Kenneth Moore. We all understand Jones and Colhane through the FBI file and their histories, their family histories are well known, provided by their families. No one really knew anything about Kenneth Moore or the person he said was with him the day that he killed Jones and Colhane, John Wesley Cole. No one knows anything about Cole or Kenneth Moore. And I really spent years trying to find out as much about him as I could because I want to understand them too. And I want to understand the story as fully as I could because I, I felt like that was fair. I wanted to know who did it, not just who died. And I didn't want to just think about the people that killed Jones and Colhane as being terrible people who, you know, were ruthless. 
they were people too, and they had other motivations. And that's what I tried to do in the book. I want to, I want to understand the four main characters fully. So Moore and Cole, and Jones and Colhane, all older men. But, you know, John Wesley Cole was actually the oldest person in the group by several years, and I think John Wesley Cole was there that day. I spent hours and hours talking to his family. They do not agree with my conclusions. But I think John Wesley Cole was the person there that day. Kenneth Moore said he was there. And I think it was, you have to, if you want to picture the scene, I don't like to talk about it, but if you have to picture the scene, you have to really picture four middle-aged men out there in a horrible, desperate situation where one of them does something completely uh, something he shouldn't have done when Albert Jones fought back. And then that's what, that's what caused all the mayhem and the dreadful outcome. But they were four middle-aged men that really it was just supposed to be a robbery. It was just a crime of opportunity. Uh, Kenneth Moore and John Wesley Cole, I think, were just there to pinched their wallets and their watches. They were, you know, they brought them out to the woods just to rob them. But then all hell broke loose and Moore had a gun and he shot him in the way that, in the kind of way that a person like him would shoot someone. He didn't shoot him like face on like a, it wasn't a mafia thing. He shot him right in the neck like you'd kill an animal, Right. That's another thing about the crimes, which is unusual and also is consistent with more the way they died, getting just shot in the neck like that. It's not a like a uh, crime like uh, someone would just shoot someone right face to face or in the back or anything. Shooting someone in the neck is highly unusual. And you have to look at who shoots people in the neck. What, how does that happen? Because it happened twice, identically. Well, that's how you put down an animal, right? So you have to think about who puts down animals, someone who works on a ranch, someone who's a hunter or a trapper. And hunter, rancher, trapper were all consistent with Kenneth Moore and John Wesley Cole. Well, I so appreciate you sharing some of what you've learned about this case with us. So if people want to connect with you, read your book, in what direction can we gently nudge them in my publisher is genius publishing out of milwaukee wisconsin and uh then i have a facebook page too that's called the crater lake murders and you'll see my name next to it so i i'd love to engage with anybody on the facebook page and i'm in the process of building a website because i have so much information you know i have I have the, a lot of public information that is the FBI files and Oregon State police records and county police records. And I thought maybe the best thing I could do is to make a lot of these public records available via a website where people could look at them too. And, and they might be able to, to uh, they might have their own views and they might know things that I don't know which I expect is true. I know there are a lot of people out there, like at this point, I know there are a lot of people out there, particularly in Chiloquin, that know things I don't know. 
I just, they just are not ever going to tell me. So I thought I'll just, I'm going to throw up a, I'm going to build a website here in the next, you know, month or two. But in the meantime, I have a Facebook page that's dedicated to it. And then my publisher also is a place where you can buy a book or Amazon. I'm sure it's on Amazon too. Well, thank you again. You're welcome, Eric. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. I enjoyed our, our, I enjoyed our entire talk. Again, I have been speaking to Monty Oreck. His book is called The Crater Lake Murders, the story of the 1952 murders of two General Motors executives and the search for a killer hiding in plain sight. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.